Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. None of us, except people that have children, could even have respect for people who were uh, women in particular, who were functioning in these plantation kitchens with fireplace hearths that were half the size of their bodies in hoop skirts that could easily catch on fire. And now you have children running around in these big, heavy cauldrons. And you are also trying to maintain the heat level. There is no thermostat. There's no temperature control on your fireplace. And so when the mistress wants toast for breakfast, you are toasting bread over an open flame. And we have just not given these people the kind of credit that they deserve. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. We're all about food in Florida. Support for the Zest podcast comes from Seitenbacher brand natural foods like muesli cereals, oils, oatmeal, energy bars, gluten-free fruit gummies for the kids, organic coffee, and more. Available in supermarkets, health food stores, or online at seitenbacher.com. Tony Tipton Martin won a James Beard Award in 2016 for her book, The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. Her latest work is Jubilee, and it's a collection of recipes from those antique cookbooks that she researched for the Jemima Code. In February, Tony came to St. Petersburg to speak at the third annual Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival held at the Carter G. Woodson African American Museum. That's where she sat down with the Zest producer, Dalia Colon. Now you're everywhere. I look at your Instagram, I look at your schedule online. There are so many places you could be. Why did you want to come to the Collard Green Festival in South St. Pete, Florida? Well, I have been everywhere. You're absolutely right. Um, And besides the lovely weather, um, I love the excitement of what's happening here in the food world. Um, There's just so much appreciation for African-American food history, um, the association with healthy eating, especially as it pertains to um, eating dark leafy greens. I'm a nutrition writer, so dark Dark leafy greens matter to me, and so I really um, thought this would be a great place to bring my tour. Tell me about your latest book. Um, So my latest book um, is called Jubilee, and it um, includes 125 recipes and beautifully photographed dishes that represent a new, not new uh, in terms of African-American knowledge, but certainly new as in terms of um, what the rest of us have all thought about uh, what it means to cook African-American food. It represents more than the sole survival style of cooking and the food that we tend to think of associated with African-American Americans in terms of um, survival cooking. So what does African-American cooking mean? As an African-American, when I think of traditional African-American food, I do think of like collard greens and ham hocks, macaroni and cheese, sweet potato pie. Is that what we're talking about here or does it go beyond that? 
Well, certainly those foods are part of the African-American culinary tradition, and we don't want to disparage those, marginalize them, or otherwise try to say that they need to be improved upon, enhanced, uplifted, or any of those terms that a lot of people have been struggling to try to find a way to place in a broader canon of African-American cooking. But what we have neglected in all of these years is a broader perspective on African-American cooking, meaning the inclusion of diasporic cooking. We're not, we haven't been talking a lot about West African traditions. We haven't talked a lot about the Caribbean. Um, and the culture or the part of our culture that we have most blatantly ignored are the people who prepared food as part of our professional class, people who cooked for a living. And that goes all the way back to the people who worked in the plantation kitchen. We have not thought about those people as professionals who were creating an aspect of African-American food. But they were French-trained, many of them classically trained. And those tendencies, those traditions, those practices have been handed down through generations of black cooking. We just haven't identified them as classic cooking. So, for example, the idea of making gravy, right? Our recipes, our ancestors would just say, I made gravy, And what we are really talking about is a French technique that begins with making a roux. Um, And so I have really just looked at the culinary practices through the lens of of the Culinary Academy, like using their curriculum, to extract what were African Americans doing um, when they were cooking food as train cooks, as plantation cooks, as folks working as ranch cooks, people who were restaurateurs who had oyster houses in the Northeast, hotel owners. There is a broad category of entrepreneurs that can serve as inspiration for the next generation. That's such a good point about who gets to be considered kind of a legit chef and who is just cooking to feed someone. And you could, in a way, say the same thing about female cooks. You know, a lot of home cooks haven't gotten maybe the respect that they deserve. Why do you think now is the right time for people to be receiving your message? Could you have written this book 20 years ago and have it have been received in the same way? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. Number one, um, this is not a book about home cooks. This is about professional cooks. Um, And that, again, is not to disparage what happens in home cooking. But we honor today's celebrity cooks for the food that they prepare at work. So we respect and honor our TV food people. Um, We honor mainstream chefs for the food they prepare in restaurants and in their cookbooks. And we have neglected to offer African-Americans that same level of dignity and respect. So while home cooking is certainly valuable, my intention with this book is to direct our attention to the professional level cooks. Um, What does it mean to be a chef? That is a definable word. It tends to mean supervisor uh, of a kitchen. It's, a fr- it's out of the French tradition. And so, again, the idea that African-Americans have held that position, they have been managers of kitchens. They have functioned in very organized, um, meticulous ways. They have understood the quality of their ingredients. They have managed other people. Even if in the, in the case of enslaved people, they were managing children. 
right? And so none of us, except people that have children, who understand what it means to actually have a child messing around underfoot while you're trying to cook or otherwise concentrate, could even have respect for people who were uh, women in particular, who were functioning in these plantation kitchens with fireplace hearths that were half the size of their bodies in hoop skirts that could easily catch on fire. And now you have children running around in these big, heavy cauldrons made out of cast iron that you are navigating and negotiating. And you are also trying to maintain the heat level. There is no thermostat. There's no temperature control on your fireplace. And so when the mistress wants toast for breakfast, you are toasting bread over an open flame. And we have just not given these people the kind of credit that they deserve. And so finally, um, as part of your uh, the rest of your question, um, I wrote a book several years ago called The Jemima Code, and it was designed to draw attention to these people. Jubilee is a collection of the recipes from the author's represented in the Jemima Code. So initially when I published and proposed the idea of the Jemima Code, no one was interested in promoting that message. Publishers and literary agents would not carry my product into New York. And African Americans, frankly, had some hesitancy uh, about this idea of a book that uses a image of a servant as its banner. But I am reclaiming the bandana. My uh, logoing and slogan are, we are to embrace the bandana. We are reclaiming the legacy and the dignity associated with servitude, servant-heartedness. We have been sold a bill of goods about African Americans and the food tradition. Where else do we have an African American woman who is on the cover of a box and her identity represents quality, and the ability for you to perform really well in your kitchen, meaning to make really great pancakes. We've missed that message. It's an encoded message. At one point, it says she is a perpetual slave, and we got stuck on that, right? We have not been willing to see the other side of that, which means quality. So many good points. And when you were talking about the women managing children while they were cooking, I mean, my three-year-old was just in here and we had to remove him from this office because I couldn't even speak to you without him interrupting and causing, you know, just a ruckus. So I have so much respect for um, these people and the message that you're bringing. Are there any recipes that stand out to you or that people may be surprised to find in the books? Well, everyone asks that question, so it's a great, uh, compelling question. I explain often there's a difference between what is my favorite recipe and what was the most surprising, curious recipe to me. And I love to point out the celery braised celery recipe. There was a time in our history when we were living close to the soil. Celery was a coveted item on the table. Um, It's a vegetable that's really great for people that are suffering from hypertension um, because of its diuretic processes. And African-American cookbooks throughout history have often included a dish called braised celery or the celery was in some kind of a gravy or sauce. But what I discovered doing more more research to put the dish in social context was that it mimicked a dish uh, that restaurateurs were selling called Celery Victor. And so uh, obviously these women who were caterers placed the dish on their menu possibly because it represented something that their clients were consuming in restaurants. Wow, celery. Who knew? (laughs) Right. 
Right. And so there will be those who will look at this book and think, well, these are not dishes that represent my family tradition. And that's the point. Um, we have been narrowly defined as if we only had one, one way of cooking, and that doesn't apply to any other culture. Other people who have come to this country came as immigrants, and African Americans were not immigrants. Uh, we were brought here against our will as captives, and that means that we brought with us traditions just like everyone else, but we were forbidden to display those. It doesn't mean that we did not possess those skills and traditions. It just means we could have lost our lives if we had exhibited them. And so what happened was there is a subconscious, subtle imprint that African Americans have left on traditional American cooking. And now scholars are beginning to tease that out to try to understand what did it look like to be cooking in pre-colonial Africa and to see what kinds of culinary theory is visible in those old ways, food ways, and how those might have been embedded in particularly in Southern food. Hmm. Yeah, you've already educated me. I had no idea about the celery. I'm going to have to give celery another look. Who did you have in mind when you were writing this book? I'm African American and you're educating me. I'm sure that people of all backgrounds would learn something from reading your books. Was there a reader that you had in mind that you really wanted to target when you were going about this? Well, you know, um, publishers, one of the questions they always ask you when you make a book proposal is, who is your audience? And you are thought to be not very thoughtful if you just say everybody. But the reality is that everyone can benefit from the reading of my work. Um, but in my mind, I was particularly and am particularly interested in spurring on the next generation. Um, it took me a year to find the photographer. I wanted a black food photographer. And there are so many career paths that young people can take within the food industry that don't require them to be participants in food service, to try to have restaurants, to be authors, to be celebrity chefs. There is way more than that. We need more students who are doing research like mine, who are taking oral histories, people who are interested in restaurant design and architecture, photographers. We need more food stylists. There are so many opportunities for young African Americans in the food world. And by um, providing images of role models in the Jemima Code and then demonstrating their recipes in Jubilee, hopefully this legacy, rich legacy of African American culinary entrepreneurship and knowledge will translate to the next generation. Let's talk a little more about the recipes. We tend to talk about African-American cooking and its make-do qualities. Well, when you're making do with oranges and blueberries or asparagus or whatever is seasonally and locally available, that similarly can be called make-do. But uh, what I've preferred to call it is uh, cooking, sumptuous cooking, when ingredients and resources permit. I mean, that's what people basically teach today is to eat seasonally, whatever's the, you know, the cheapest fruit at the grocery store is in season, so it's probably going to taste the best anyway. So it's so simple and profound at the same time. Did you learn anything about seafood? Seafood is so big here in Florida. I did, and uh, again, the inclusion of seafood represents regionality, but when that same seafood is inserted in a recipe in a region where seafood is not plentiful, then it reflects affluence and access. So, for example, Frida DeKnight in eight, 1948 published a book called Date with a Dish, and it was later adapted. The title was changed to the Ebony Cookbook because she was the food editor 
at Ebony Magazine, and Ebony Magazine was targeted at middle and upper class African Americans. She includes a recipe for deviled eggs with crab, which occurs in many of the cookbooks. And if you are in the southeast or along the Gulf Coast, then the idea of adding crab to a dish doesn't seem all of that extravagant. It seems like make-do. It seems like low-income. It seems like poverty cooking. All you had to do was go out into the area and harvest the crab. But if you were in a landlocked state and crab is a rarity, then the idea of including crab in a dish expresses affluence because you were able to purchase that crab. And so definitely there are regional variations that can be interpreted as more sumptuous cooking depending upon where the cook is. Yeah, I think about my grandparents living in Philadelphia in their little row house, and they always have a stack of ebony magazines (laughs) and how luxurious crab would have seemed to them compared to like a cheesesteak or something. (laughs) There's such a fervor. You know, I pulled up and a block before I got to the festival, traffic was backed up. There are people of every color, every age here at the Collard Green Festival, and there seems to be an appetite, no pun intended, for this type of information and just this cultural exchange. Why do you think now is the time? Is it the internet? Is it the emphasis on sort of farm-to-table eating? What makes the soil so rich for this conversation these days? Well, all of those are the, re- the rationales um, that I would have given had you not enumerated them. But what I will add to that is that we are living in a political climate that is so divisive and adverse. And what my work is intended to do is to break down stereotypes. We have a perception, an implicit bias, whatever is your preferred terminology, for looking at people a certain way based on whatever the historical representation of them has been. And what I am doing is broadening the lens and allowing us to see African Americans in a different way. What I want is for us to take the blinders off when we enter an African American restaurant and no longer expect that chef to be producing cheap eats to pay them for their classical training and education and to appreciate the artistic flair that they demonstrate on the plate, whether there's fried chicken there or not. But at the same time, to pay them the same $30 we will pay a white chef for his fried chicken. I want to inspire young people, as I said before, and I want to use all of this work to break down the barriers that exist between us. That's just an extension of my work at the Southern Foodways Alliance and in my own nonprofit, this idea that we can increase race tolerance and we can uplift the next generation and help them become more economically independent are motivators for me more so than teaching us all about really great delicious cooking. They just I'm using food and cooking as the mechanism for social change. Love that. And who doesn't love food? <laughs> Everybody loves food. Well, Tony Tipton Martin, thank you so much for your time and uh, enjoy the Florida weather while you're down here. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. That was culinary author and activist Tony Tipton Martin speaking with Delia Cologne. We have recipes for braised celery, Creole fried chicken, and gingerbread with lemon sauce from Tony's cookbook, Jubilee. Find them on our website, thezestpodcast.com. We're so appreciative of your time and your attention. You can get to know us better by going to our Facebook page or following our Instagram account at The Zest Podcast. 
I'm Robin Sessingham. Dalia Colon and I produce The Zest, which is a production of WUSF Public Media. Mm-hmm.